Hello. I'm having a very funny experience looking out, thinking, oh, you got it off the waiting list. What do you know? <laughs> I just saw you the other night. You were number 30. <laughs> Look at that. So welcome. When uh, the managers are doing that introductory talk, like Rodney just did, <coughs> very often we sit outside. Um, my favorite thing, I missed it tonight, is when they say, uh, I, don't, I don't know, he said something, I'm sure, like it, if not exactly it, but my favorite thing is when the managers say, if you're walking and you run into a neighbor, act normal. <laughs> I love that, for some reason. Uh, maybe because it is such a, it's a, such a really unusual thing to do with one's time in this culture in this time period, really in any time period. Um, sometimes I, you know, I meet people who are really uh, hesitant and, and kind of a little trembly about coming on retreat. And, and I think, wow, you know, if you were to think, I think I'll spend the next four years in graduate school, nobody would blink, you know? But if you tell your friends I'm going on a silent retreat, it's a little odd very often. Um, many times people, for example, will say, as they look toward the retreat, if they've never done one before, the thing that's the most intimidating and sort of weird is the notion of silence, like to have silent meals and not really be chatting. And almost always, when people leave, it's the single most, thing, most common thing they point to is having been the most beautiful. <coughs> because it's like for once in our lives, we can relax a little bit and just be ourselves. We don't have to be presenting ourselves to someone else or to a group as interesting or dramatic or you know, courageous or anything. We can just be. And it actually is such a relief. Sometimes people come and they say, I don't think I can be silent for three days, seven days, whatever it is, or my partner doesn't think I can be silent, or one woman came once and she said they're doing a bedding pool in my office, they don't think I can be silent. And yet, you know, it's a stretch. And to be willing to, to undertake that and kind of be a little bit audacious in your experience of consciousness and, and you know, step out of the confines of what's familiar, it's great. So. Thank you all for coming. I'm so delighted to have the colleagues that I have here with me. Um, Oren and Mark, who are going to say something, and Tanya somewhere, there you are, who'll be leading the yoga, and we'll be talking about that more tomorrow. And, um, you know, we opened this center. We moved in on Valentine's Day in 1976. So it's been a long time. And, uh, I feel just amazed when I come back, you know, and, and just feel the, the layers of peace and the accumulation of people's really sincere efforts, and you can just feel it, right, just, just being here. And I know that uh, we have looked so carefully at the... Oh, you got in too, that's interesting. <laughs> at the retreat experience. Um, and you know, what would be most supportive for people's practice. So, so it's really, it's both kind of an art and a science as we try to co-create an atmosphere that really will uh, support everyone to be alone and together, to step away from those familiar ways of identifying oneself. You know how often we are in some situation and we meet someone for the first time and the question is, what do you do, right? We don't tend to say, what brings you joy? What made you happy this last week? Anything surprise you today? You know, what's your favorite color? It's like, what do you do? And it's very funny here because as the days go by, the beginning of a retreat, even if you've had a tremendous amount of experience, tends to be more difficult. It's the time of the most restlessness. Our whole system needs to settle down. We get used to a much quieter level of sensory stimulation. So unless you lead a very, very quiet life outside, it's a little bit like culture shock. Like, whoa, what is this? You know, no one's talking. Um, where's the TV? All that. 
but after a while, you really do feel at home here, which is the best feeling for us to understand you're having. And uh, you feel at home, you are at home, you make it a home, you sort of mold the schedule in a way to, to what's really working for you. You're working with teachers um, and getting feedback, and uh, it's all very different after a while. And at that point, you know, if somebody said to you, what do you do? It might not be your work at home. It might be, I'm a veggie chopper, you know, or I, like, I clean that bathroom, that little bathroom right near the staircase or, or whatever. It's a whole other way of being and recognizing ourselves. We also recognize one another in, in a very different way. So it's a beautiful kind of experience, and it's, it's very, very different for many of us. I often say for myself, if I'm about to sit a retreat, in the first few days, even after all these years, it's almost like there are these two voices inside my mind. The first voice says, oh, there's nothing happening here. It must be time to go to sleep. So even if I slept for 15 hours the night before, it doesn't matter. I come into the meditation hall, I sit down, and I conk out. Or there's the and, or there's the other voice, which says, oh, there's nothing happening here. It must be time to make something happen. So that's all the, you know, let's design another meditation center and how about another book and why don't we do that? And in the meantime, you know, and so it's just this phenomenal flood of ideas and thinking and planning and fantasy. And so it's not uncommon for the first couple of days or day, let's say, to be a pretty intense careening from sleepiness to restlessness to sleepiness to restlessness. And that's not considered problematic. It's certainly not considered abnormal. Much more of a problem is the thought that so commonly arises within us that says, oh no, seven more days exactly like this sitting. Or every time I sit down to meditate for the rest of my life, I will fall asleep, right? It's taking a situation in the present moment, adding an imagined future and all that anticipation and we worry and so on. Those are really fascinating patterns to take a look at, and we tend to see them pretty clearly in the quiet and in the <clears throat> kind of the intensity of the focus. So uh, we're going to undertake silence, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. We have a way of being in community that's um, respectful of everybody's space, and we practice. We have, over the course of these seven days... Um, different elements of kind of a, an arc of practice that we're going to go into. To begin with, we're just going to do some simple concentration and mindfulness <coughs> practice, which is really like a skill to help anchor our experience more in our bodies in the moment and to develop the incredibly delicate and essential art of being able to begin again. Because... I really do think it's a little bit like a fractal, you know, there's a tremendous, in that one movement of the mind of learning how to let go and begin again, there's a whole path to freedom. It's right there, like just in that one thing. Because what happens? In a lot of foundational exercises in meditation, we're asked to choose a certain object of awareness we rest our attention on that object, right? Let's say it's the feeling of the breath, which is how we're going to start until we move over to loving-kindness practice. We rest our attention on the feeling of the breath. I wrote one book called um, Real Happiness, which has a lot of like meditation, guided meditations in it, in, in describing things and... The first time I got it back from the editor, she said, you're using the word rest an awful lot. Are you very tired? And I wrote back and I said, probably, but that's the word. You know, sometimes, let's say it's the breath, people think, if I get a stranglehold on the breath, my mind won't wander, and it really will wander more. So we learn a kind of balance right there, how to rest our attention. And what we discover inevitably is that it's not five hours before our minds wander. You know, maybe it's one breath, maybe it's five breaths. Whatever it is, we find 
we're way sucked into the past or into the future or judgment or speculation. We're just gone. We're disconnected. And then comes the magic moment when we realize that. Oh, it's been quite some time since I last felt a breath. That's the moment where the kind of transformational process happens really strongly. We learn to let go gently. And we learn without judging ourselves and berating ourselves and being down on ourselves and calling ourselves a failure, we learn to bring our attention back to begin again. We let go and we come back. We let go and we start over. And that's why we sometimes call meditation practice like resilience training. Because that's a really important moment right there. It sounds like nothing like if... So I know many of you have not been here before. And if you left... Let's say you left tonight and ran into a friend. And they said, what'd you do? And you said, I, I felt a few breaths. My mind wandered and I brought it back. It would be like, huh. All right. Not much, it doesn't sound like. But it's a huge, big deal. Really, in a day, think about how many times you have to do just that. You had a big goal, you forgot it, you fell down, you have to pick yourself up and start over. Or things came in, you couldn't have predicted, and you have to adjust, and, right? We're always starting over in those ways. So this is a huge life skill we are practicing right there. And on that basis, we expand the awareness to be aware of our bodies, our emotions, all the many things that come and go with that same quality of interest and um, non-judgmental awareness so that we can see more deeply into our experience. And we're going to move to uh, the particular skill that this practice period is dedicated to, which is loving-kindness. So... Um, we're going to have concentration, we're going to have mindfulness, and we're going to uh, take that pretty quickly into the world of loving-kindness meditation as a meditation. So tomorrow, uh, starting tonight and through tomorrow, uh, we're going to be working with some fundamental mindfulness to more fully arrive and really kind of ground um, in this moment and in the body, and then we're going <coughs> to move over to the formal practice of loving-kindness. So loving-kindness is the common translation, as many of you know. How many of you have done loving-kindness practice before? Whoa. I feel so proud. <laughs> um, uh, loving-kindness is the common translation for a word in Pali. Pali is the language of the original Buddhist texts. And uh, the word in Pali is metta, M-E-T-T-A. It's the word, of course, you see up above the doorway, if you came in the front door. Uh, when we first bought the place and then moved in in 1976, um, when we first bought it, it was owned by the Catholic Church. It was a novitiate. <coughs> That's why you see downstairs is a one-lane bowling alley. And yes, the Dalai Lama did go bowling here. It's true. Um, and so there were a lot of kind of social amenities when we first moved in. There was a pool, which we filled in, and a candle-making factory, all kinds of stuff. And um, up above the doorway, it said, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. So we asked somebody to get up in a very tall ladder, on a very cold day, and we said, could you please rearrange those letters so it says something about us? And they got up there, and they came up with Meta, M-E-T-T-A, so... What ensued was something that was really kind of a hallmark of our experience in those days, which is we had to debate it because um, we had no models. This, we were really, there were no precedents. We were the first people as Westerners to establish a retreat center that was not only referring back to, say, a singular Asian monastery and, um, you know, where a mixture of Asian teachers and Western teachers would be teaching and um, I, as all of my colleagues at the time, had come up in a um, climate uh, where we were taught, um, you know, these, these methods are available and they're all about awareness and they're about the power of your own mind and your own ability to see the truth. It's not in any way about becoming a Buddhist or... Um, 
having a dogma or a certain set of beliefs. And, and that was so strongly ingrained. And yet, you know, when we look back, and you'll hear more about this, I'm sure, tonight as well, there is such a thing as lineage and tradition, and, you know, um, there's a history to these practices and to the many, many people who've practiced very hard and, and preserved them. So, for example, I was teaching in Connecticut once and teaching loving-kindness, and this has nothing to do with Connecticut, it just happened to be there, and I was teaching loving-kindness, and somebody said to me, this is the most amazing stuff. When did you make it up? And I said, well, you know, I didn't really make anything up, and you're kind of lucky I didn't, you know? Like, it's better this way, believe me. You know, so we're always trying to hold all of that and figure out what to do. Should we have Buddhas? Should we have, you know, so here was this word, metta, up in front of the doorway, and no one understood it, and we had big debates. And finally, the point of view that said it should stay up there prevailed, which made me very happy because that was my point of view. <laughs> you know, and I just like it. I like that when people call for directions, <coughs> whoever answers the phone can say, it's a large brick building with white pillars, and has this word up above, metta. Then they just say, what does that mean? And we say that means loving kindness. That means love. So loving kindness is the common translation. And it's the word, obviously, I use and, and you know, we all tend to use. It's a little bit um, strange, a term, I think. It's not the kind of term, depending on where you are, where you're likely, say, to be in a, a restaurant and overhear a conversation at the next table being about loving kindness. Um, and so I am concerned that that might make the quality itself seem a little removed from day-to-day -day life and kind of arcane and precious in that negative sense of the word. I've had scholars and translators come to me and say, just say love. Stop being so cutesy about it, you know? You mean love. Just say love. And uh, sometimes these days I do. But it's tricky, right? Because how many ways do we use that word love and how many different things do we mean including sometimes a real uh, frank sense of exchange. You know, I will love you as long as. You love me in return as long as the following 15 conditions are met. And I once said that in front of a group and someone called out, only 15 conditions? <laughs> I said, okay, as long as however many conditions are met. So we understand that state, and certainly we experience it a lot, but that's not exactly what metta means. Um, and so part of what happens here is an exploration, not an, a kind of coldly analytical exploration, but a really deeply embodied exploration of what does that kind of generosity of the heart feel like, and what does it feel like when I include rather than exclude? What does it feel like when I don't berate myself endlessly but I can have some compassion for myself. You know, what's it like when I move toward trying to have compassion for someone and myself at the same time? And what's it like with the um, injection or the, the inclusion of wisdom, of understanding as I love, as I care, as I try to take care? You know, what does it feel like, for example, to have tremendous compassion for someone and realize I can't fix it? This is not in my hands. What's it like to have compassion for someone and realize I disagree so profoundly with your actions that I'm just going to fight in some way? You know, again, we're not trying to figure it all out, but we keep practicing and we keep exploring and we keep looking and we come to some real embodied understanding about these things and more so. It's a very experiential process and and we're really here to try to support you. The whole environment is really created to try to, to support you in that exploration. Okay, so. So I'd also like to add my welcome. Uh, it's lovely to be back here. Been teaching this course with Sharon off and on now for what? Maybe 10, 15 years, I think. I think more. Yeah, a lot. So, um, and I was just thinking, how great that you've taken this week from your life, not taken it from, given it to yourself, and that we're going to be spending this whole week 
delving and immersing ourselves in cultivating the heart, in developing kindness, love, joy, equanimity. This is a beautiful thing. How different would the world be if we down tools all seven billion people and did, you know, did this even for a day, even for an hour. <laughs> so how lovely that you've given yourself this gift. How many of you, this is your first uh, retreat here at IMS, just curious. Okay, and how many of you, is your, this is your first week-long loving-kindness retreat? All right, okay, good, so good third of you, half of you maybe. So, um, well, you're in for a treat, not necessarily an easy one. <laughs> it's work, it's beautiful work. Love doesn't necessarily flow easily because this is also a purification practice and we get to explore what's interfering with us abiding and generating and being able to really live with this quality of uh, open-heartedness and kindness. So we get to explore the fullness of this quality and also what gets in the way. Where is our heart limited? Where is it challenged? Where is it closed to ourselves, to others? Yeah. So it's a great learning. I think of this as a wisdom uh, practice as well as a heart practice. I had the good fortune of stumbling into a Buddhist center, probably the only one, I think, in London in 1984. I was a confused, angry, anguished punk rocker. I had a big white mohawk and was really suffering and terrible self-hatred, terrible self-judgment and uh, really didn't like myself. And um, I went in there to learn meditation and they were teaching this practice called loving kindness. And, uh, and I thought, that's interesting. Didn't really think that's what I'd be learning in meditation. And, um, and my heart, when I first started doing the practice, was really frozen, numb. And I could be relatively warm to other people, but not so easy to be kind to myself. Anybody notice that? A little not so favorable to yourself? Right. So, and this is really the basis from, from which so much of our kindness flows. And so I was happy I learned that practice early in my life because it took some years to cultivate and work with the obstacles and find a way into my own heart. And out of that, therefore having more capacity to be kind to others. So um, there's a quote from Rilke I like about, that speaks I think to this work that we're doing together this week. He says, for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks. The ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all our other work is but preparation. So this is deep work, it's beautiful work. And I'm really happy that you are here to explore these qualities and looking forward to getting to know you in this journey. And um, if I had a um, one word of, if there was one quality that I would invite you to really uh, inv- uh, cultivate as you're here is to be patient, patient with yourself, patient with your practice, patient with your perennially wandering mind and patience with the heart and how it opens or not and how it grows or not. So we can we tend to be terribly hard on ourselves and um, you know we set our evaluating, assessing mind, what days of the day, Wednesday, by Thursday noon, I expect to be full boundless loving kindness to all beings everywhere, damn it. <laughs> not so, not so. So, my last book, I wrote a book called uh, Make Peace With Your Mind, How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Inner Critic. You might notice at times the judging voice <laughs> more than the loving kindness heart. You might notice the way that you're critical of yourself, hard, harsh. Anybody judgmental of themselves here? Anyone just one or two? <laughs> right. So I think of, when I teach the work on the critic, I think of loving kindness as the most powerful antidote to the critical, judgmental, harsh, undermining mind that so many of us have and are plagued by. And, and using the phrases and using these, these intentional wishes of kindness being a very beautiful 
way to uh, almost flush out and create a, a, a much more kind foundation of well-being and positive regard. So in the context of the retreat, in the context of uh, the Buddhist tradition from which these practices arose, one of the things that we like to do is setting, for setting the container of the retreat is to think about where we're taking refuge and how we're taking refuge. And so this is something that's done uh, at the beginning of every uh, period of practice, often daily for people, certainly in Southeast Asia. And really it's... Um, Oops, I just gone a little deaf there. One second. I've <laughs> got some intense ear ringing. All right, I'll keep talking. I can't really hear myself very well. Um, well that's weird. Sorry. <laughs> There's a little echoing ringing going on. Um, probably the jet lag. I just flew in from California this afternoon. Um, so as we enter into this period, to reflect on um, what it is that we're giving central importance to. In our lives, we take refuge in many things. Maybe it's family, maybe it's work, maybe it's service, maybe it's making money, maybe it's our education. On um, here, on retreat, we orient in a very, uh, perhaps, different way. And as is tradition, in Buddhist practice, we take refuge in what's called the three refuges. And I'll just briefly say what those are. We'll do a call and response, uh, taking of those refuges. And the first refuge is to take refuge in the Buddha. Buddha, the word literally means uh, to awaken, to be awake. And so we're taking refuge in our capacity to awaken. In particular, in this context, to awaken the loving, compassionate heart. We have this innate jewel of awareness that knows, it's clear, understands our experience. And we're understanding our capacity that we all have innate within us, the capacity to be awake, to know, and to free the heart. So we're really taking refuge in that fundamental trust and confidence in our own capacity to awaken. It also means taking refuge in the historical Buddha who was a person like us, who was suffering like us, and through his own practice, mindfulness, wisdom, insight, inquiry, uh, developed a full uh, capacity for awakening um, from which these teachings come. So the second refuge is to take refuge in the Dharma. These teachings of the Buddha, these practices, uh, and the pointing to and taking refuge in the way things are, the truth of what is. How often in our lives are we struggling and trying to resist or complain or fight against the reality of what is? What's it like to take refuge in the way things are? It doesn't mean to be passive, it doesn't mean to fight that which is necessary to stand up to injustice or whatever. But what does it mean to take refuge in the truth of your experience, the truth of this moment, meeting it with a kind heart, with a clear awareness? So in this context, we're taking refuge in meeting our experience moment to moment with clarity, with awareness, with kindness. I'm also taking refuge in these practices that have been developed and cultivated for thousands of years. I've always appreciated studying in, in this tradition. Uh, I teach a lot of Esalen in California, which is in a wonderful uh, center of exploration of um, psychology and New Age philosophy and spirituality. But a lot of the stuff was made up 20, 30, 40 years ago. I love practicing in a tradition that's been around for thousands of years, that's been, pra- been practiced by millions of years throughout many, many cultures, and has been tried and tested. So we take refuge in, the, in the, these teachings that have uh, allowed people to walk a path of awakening, understanding, compassionate heart, 
And then lastly, we take refuge in the Sangha, in the community. And so we're going to be creating this sort of transient monastery here, temple, right? There's maybe a hundred or so of us and you may not know anybody here or maybe you know quite a few people. I I recognize many familiar faces from the years of doing these retreats. Um, But we come together with a like-minded, with a like-minded group of people with a similar orientation to be present, to wake up, to cultivate the heart, to love, to look at what gets in the way of that. This is a beautiful intention. This is a beautiful community. I often think what would happen is if we had a hundred cabins here at IMS, and some retreats are more sort of cabin oriented, and you and you get sent out to your cabin, and and the instruction is cultivate love and kindness. Come back next Wednesday. Let us know how you got on. How many of you would? Get up at 5.30 in the morning or whatever it is, 6 o'clock, and meditate till 9.30 at night. Now, some of you, but more likely, you know, take much more walks around Gaston Pond and do some reading and take lots of naps and who knows what. Right? So there's something very powerful and very beautiful about coming together. You know, maybe you, you, know, you hear the wake-up bell and you kind of drag yourself into the room at 6.30 or some god-earthly time and you get in here and the room's full, everyone's sitting quietly, it's in stillness. And that, and that, that you seeing that creates a sense of inspiration. You know, we dr- just in the same way that geese fly on the draft of the wings of the birds flying in front of it, we somewhat draft on the, the, the intention and the energy that's created here. And there's something very beautiful uh, about coming together in this way. And I think so often, especially in our lives, either we, we practice alone or we're maybe the only person in our work or our school or our neighborhood that meditates and so there's a sense of isolation. And it's beautiful to come together and say, oh right, I'm not as weird as people think I am because there's a whole lot of us here. And, um, and so we can feel that, that positive up, uplift that comes from it, take inspiration. From that, in the same way that we take inspiration, take refuge from the, the 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 countless amount of people who've walked this path, who've taught uh, these teachings, who've woken up through these practices. So we take refuge here in this week in this capacity to awaken, particularly awaken the the loving heart. We take refuge in the in the uh, taking refuge in. Uh, meeting, opening to the ways things are, with clarity, with awareness, and we take refuge in this community. So uh, we'll do this formally uh, through chanting, and we'll do this call and response, and we'll do this in Pali um, as a way of just arriving and making commitment to taking refuge in this capacity to awaken in the truth of the way things are, and spiritual community, which we are in for a week. Bhutang Saranaga Chami Bhutang Saranaga Chami Dhammang Saranaga Chami Dhammang Saranaga Chami Sanghang Saranaga Chami Dutiampi Budhang Saranga Chami Dutiampi Dhammang Saranga Chami Dutiampi Sanghang Saranga Chami Tatiampi Budhang Sadananga Chami Tatiampi Damang Sadananga Chami Tatiampi Sanghang Sadananga Chami 
take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Sangha, take refuge in the Dhamma. So thank you and look forward to getting to know you in this week of practice together and wishing you a beautiful heart opening retreat. Thank you. Fun to be with this crew too. Good evening. My name is Oren J. Sofer. Um, I think it's been said already, but uh, I want to begin by respectfully acknowledging the indigenous people who lived on this land for many generations and who looked after it and who still to this day live in this region of the, the Nipmuc people. I think when we come to do... Um, deep spiritual work, when we come to look inside and to understand our own hearts and minds, uh, to ask the important questions of what it is to be human, to be alive on this planet together, um, that we do this work not only for ourselves, that we do it uh, for one another, we do it for our families, for our communities, and we do it for our ancestors, for our lineage, which we carry within us, each of us. And so this beautiful invocation of this tradition that's thousands of years old, that started with one person's realization and spread throughout the globe, touching millions of people's lives, all the way here to rural Massachusetts and all of us here tonight. So it's a great, uh, a great joy and honor for me to, to be in this room. Um, I've sat in your seat many times for many years and consider IMS uh, my spiritual home. And uh, it's also a great pleasure to be here with both Mark and Sharon. So I'm guessing most of us have had a long day, probably tired. There have been many words already tonight. Um, I want to continue to weave together this community that we're forming here for the next seven days um, by looking at what are the conditions that help us to do this work, this beautiful work of healing and strengthening our hearts. And Sharon spoke about this capacity to begin again, this kind of resilience training that's built in to any meditation technique. Uh, Mark spoke about the quality of patience and the refuges of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And I want to talk a little bit more about, about this, this Sangha, us being together. And the whole foundation of this path is really how we are with one another in our lives in terms of the way we treat one another and what we do with our bodies and our words and even our minds. Uh, the, the purpose of this path is to transform how we live the things that we do and say in the world, so that that comes from a deeper understanding. So that's the end result, that's the aim in one, in one way, but it's also where we begin. We begin by looking at our actions and seeing how can I begin to craft and shape my life and my behavior so that it's in line with my intentions. And so as we come together to form a community, it's helpful to have certain agreements about how we'll be together, how we will spend this time together. And within the Buddhist tradition, this is talked about as the five precepts, sometimes referred to as the five mindfulness trainings. And it's important to, for me to say these are not commandments. This is not a thou shalt uh, structure. These are 
literally trainings. If you look at the Pali, Sika Padang means a step of training. So it's about learning. It's about looking at our actions, our intentions, and the results of those actions, and seeing if we can uh, understand how to live a life that leads to more peace and well-being for ourselves and others. The essence of these five mindfulness trainings is one thing, and that's about non-harming, which is really an expression of loving kindness, that wish to not cause harm to oneself or to others. And then that gets expressed in certain ways to say, you know, I'm not going to kill. I respect the life of other creatures, and I'm going to make every effort to restrain any impulse to destroy life to not harm in that way, to recognize that when we take things that don't belong to us, that has an impact on others. So to say, I'm going to make an effort to not take things that weren't given to me, that haven't been offered, to not steal. So each of these trainings um, has a very kind of, uh, we could say, gross level And then as we learn, as we train, can become more refined to look at the precept of not stealing or not taking things that haven't been given. And then to examine our lives eventually from that perspective to say, how do I use resources? Or how do I relate to an economy that is so interconnected where every purchase has impacts and ripples throughout the globe? So these are profound investigations. And for the sake of our being here together, they form um, a foundation of safety. And this is really the the gift. These precepts are also understood as an act of generosity. That when we take these precepts, we also give something. When we take them upon ourselves voluntarily to say, I'm going to train myself in this way. We offer the gift of fearlessness to others, the gift of safety. And what a gift in the world that we live in today to say that no being need fear me. I mean, for me, particularly as as a white-skinned man, that's powerful to walk in the world with that intention, to say my deepest intention is that no being fear me. That's at the heart of this training. So the first of these precepts is to not take the life of other living creatures, to refrain from killing, and then the positive to cultivate a reverence for life, care and respect. The second is to refrain from taking things that haven't been given to us, to refrain from stealing, the, the opposite cultivation, the cultivation of generosity. The third is about our sexual energy, very powerful energy in human beings, very beautiful energy, what we can experience in this life. And to recognize that because it's so powerful, it can cause harm. And so to take responsibility for that energy and to use it with care, to say that I will not use this powerful energy to cause harm in any way. And for the context of this retreat, the agreement, the request in the agreement is to maintain celibacy. So to not engage in any sexual activity of any kind. And again, this is not about some moralistic trip that there's anything wrong with sexuality, but just to recognize one, creating a container of safety. And two, to actually say, what is it like to put that energy aside and and instead to use those impulses, to use that that Um, potential for investigation to gather our focus and attention inward and channel it in a different way as an exploration. So the uh, taking on of celibacy, um, which again can get subtle, right? With sexual energy, like how do you look at someone? How we relate to one another's physical form. So to, to have this intention of respect and care and non-harming in our being. The, uh, the fourth precept is, a, is about our words 
And in day-to-day life, this is not causing harm with our speech, which is a deep training, something that I've given a lot of time and thought to. Um, For the sake of our retreat, we're just going to keep it really simple and just say, let's not talk. (laughs) You know, (laughs) at least externally, right? The internal talking goes on. And that's a training also to see how am I talking to myself, as Mark was referring to. Am I being harsh with myself? You know, can I bring kindness to the internal voice? And Sharon was talking about how odd it can be culturally to not speak, and yet that it's a gift. So we call it noble silence, because the intention is connected to this aspiration for freedom and well-being in ourselves and in the world. It's a noble silence. I was just teaching with a colleague who likes, says that uh, some, some of the folks in his community like to call it affectionate silence. And I really like that. Because there's that sense of it's, it's a warm silence. It's not about being silenced. There's enough of that in our society. But it's about giving one another the gift of space and respect. Just say, you know, I'm going to do me and you do you. <laughs> and we can be together. You know, we can be together in a quiet, simple way. And so um, it goes without saying, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, that the, the silence includes physical contact, gesturing, you know, to just really have our attention be with ourselves. If you make eye contact with someone, it's fine to smile, you know. <laughs> you don't have to be uncomfortable about it, but we also don't need to go looking and seeking that kind of contact that we can take off the mask. This silence also includes our relationship with uh, technology, texting, social media, email, reading, writing. So we're really encouraging um, a quieting of the mind, a simplification from our habits of distraction to not need to fill the time or occupy our mind with activity and to see what's it like to just be here? Can I just be with myself? And for some of us, this can be a real challenge. You know, our, our devices are designed like lots and lots of time and energy and resource and thought going into designing them to be as addictive as possible. Because every moment that we spend on that device is generating money for someone. So there's going to be, there's a lot of energy to keeping our eyes glued to that screen. This is not a personal thing. So if you find yourself feeling addicted to your phone, this is not a personal failing. This is the result of a lot of engineering and really intelligent people figuring out how to make that happen. So if that's the case for you in some way, if you're like, I'm nervous about like, am I going to be able to not check my texts or my email on retreat? We want to make it easy for you and say, you can relinquish your phone. You can emancipate yourself from your device for the week and see what's it like to just be free of that whole temptation, that whole realm. So tomorrow morning at the 8.30 sit, we'll have a little ceremony. Anyone who wants to free themselves from their device can relinquish it and we'll keep it in the safe in the office and then you don't need to worry about it so this is the fourth precept of silence and some of its ramifications and uh, implications and then the fifth precept is about intoxicants so the whole point of this path is to lead to clarity vipassana is called clear seeing loving kindness supports the opening of the heart which is connected to a kind of wisdom, as Mark said. So intoxicants cloud the mind and go in the other direction. And they also make it more likely that we might do one of those other things that causes harm because we lose our judgment. So the fifth precept is about taking recreational drugs, intoxicants, alcohol. This doesn't include medications. So if you take medication, please continue taking that. If you brought any kind of substances or recreational drugs with you, um, Please don't use them or give them to the office. (laughs) 
They won't use them either. <laughs> They'll return them at the end. <laughs> there was. <laughs> or just lock it in your car. Okay, so those are the five precepts. And again, this is about how we, how we can be together in a way that's loving and respectful. This is not a, not a should, it's an exploration. And if you break a precept, if you kill a black fly or a mosquito by accident, okay, you know, pause, look at the results and learn from it. So again, um, we'll uh, formally uh, take these precepts with a call and response. We'll do this in English um, as a way of giving voice to our intention. Uh, this is, um, you don't have to say it out loud. If you want to just take it silently in your heart in whatever way feels meaningful or appropriate for you, that's also very welcome. And so uh, you'll notice we put our hands together like this. It's... Um, it's called a mudra. It doesn't mean that we're praying to someone. It's just a way of aligning our intention and really kind of bringing our focus to what we're doing. There's a certain way that the nervous system actually gets aligned when the palms and the digits all touch in this way. So perhaps just taking a moment to connect with your deep intention to not cause harm. I undertake the training to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech patterns. I undertake the training to refrain from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. May our commitment to non-harming and integrity support our practice deeply. So I thought we'd end with uh, just a few minutes of uh, sitting quietly together and really just letting the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.